All right. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what he was saying, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but only Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them, tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they said to him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is, is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. As you do, would you welcome up Jared Calgram? Is he going to preach for us this morning? Oh, Good to be here this morning. Um, man, it is a joy uh, to get to be with you all. Um, as Josh mentioned, he's been a friend for, for so many years. We've known Josh and Desiree, and I've loved them from a distance. We wish our families got to spend more time together. But there's this cool thing that happens within friendship. Um, when they had their, their two sons, uh, Winston and Haddon, like, we loved them before we even ever met the boys. You know? And so getting to come and spend time with them, it's just a, a realization of that love. And I share that because I feel the same way about this church family. Like, I, I love you all, even though I haven't met most of you, uh, because a, a dear friend of mine serves here and leads this family. And, uh, and so even before we know you, even before I met you, I care about you. And there is nothing I want more for you than for you to walk into a flourishing relationship with Jesus. Um, that is my prayer for you. Uh, that's, that's what has been on my mind as I, I've prepared this word. And so uh, it, it's good to be with you. Um, we are in this series here at Flourishing Grace called The King of the Cross. And uh, what's kind of cool is that Bridgepoint, the church that I, I lead and, and serve, has been walking through the Gospel of Mark as well. So last summer, Josh and I went on a hike together, and we were talking about this coming year. And I was like, you know, I think, think that we're going to walk through Mark in the fall and then come back to it after Christmas. He's like, hey, that's what we're going to do. And, and so we, uh, we, we have been doing that together to some degree. And so it's cool that, that we just get to keep doing that together. So here, you're in the King of the Cross, and here's the whole idea. The Gospel of Mark is written to answer two basic questions, okay? The first half of Mark's gospel is written to answer the question, who is Jesus? And scene after scene, you see the authority of Jesus. He has the authority uh, over sickness and over death, over spiritual darkness and over storms. Like his authority is far-reaching and unprecedented. And the point is that Jesus is the king. The king God has promised and he is the king this world needs. 
Then, in the middle of the book, Mark shifts his focus to answer a second question. What did the king come to do? So we know that Jesus is the king, and in the second half we see that he came not to take his place on a throne, but to take his place on a cross. Because what this world needs most is the forgiveness of sin, which will cure the human heart. So Jesus goes to the cross to give his life as a ransom for sin so that the world will be changed one heart at a time. And what you heard last week was this crucial conversation between Jesus and the disciples, where, where it is this watershed moment where he brings them to this, this point where they have to decide what they believe about him. He presses them. He says, there are a lot of opinions and there are a lot of thoughts about who I am, but I want to know who you think I am. And this is a critical moment for any disciple, for all of us. We've got to decide who we believe Jesus is. And Peter responds. He goes, I you are the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And Jesus affirms that, yes, you are right. And this is a turning point for Jesus and the disciples. Immediately after that, though, he corrects their view of what it means for him to be king, what it means for him to be Messiah. Because remember, these disciples were believing that if Jesus is king, he's going to take his place with power and authority. He's going to restore Israel. He's going to be a political king. Like they're going to have a place of importance and maybe even authority of their own. And Jesus goes, okay, so I am the Messiah, but here's what it means. And he goes on to say, maybe you remember it from last week, the son of man must be rejected. He must suffer. He must die. And this would have sent their heads spinning because they never would have envisioned a promised king who would die on a cross. But even further, Jesus goes, he says, so if this is what it means for you, here's what it means, excuse me, if this is what it means for me, here's what it means for you. And he says, if you want to be my disciples, it doesn't mean authority or glory or power or influence. If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. This means that, that you've got to get down off of your throne so you can bow before mine. It means that you choose to live a life of selflessness and humility. It says you've you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. In other words, you've got to be willing to walk behind me wherever I lead, no matter the cost. And this whole picture that Jesus reveals in that conversation last week is so radically different than they would have expected. Maybe you've been in a moment like that. Where, where you, you entered into a commitment to Jesus, maybe you were baptized, and all of a sudden you find it costing you more than you expected. You find it being a more difficult journey than you ever would have anticipated. Maybe you feel frustrated, maybe you feel discouraged, maybe you just feel tired. And for the disciples in this moment, they needed some kind of encounter with Jesus to encourage them. Some, some, something that would affirm that no matter what it cost them in the years to come, it would be worth it. And maybe that's what you need today too. Maybe for you, you're feeling fatigue in your faith. Your soul is feeling a little dry. Maybe you have some doubts that have creeped in. Maybe you just know that the cost is high. And you are willing, but it is hard. And you need some encouragement from Jesus. I believe that this scene in the life of Jesus is given to his disciples and passed on to us for that very reason, to encourage and strengthen us as we walk the way of the cross. And so my hope today is to be able to tell this story in a way that, that it puts it all together for us. Then we're going to step back and understand why this was so important for the disciples. Then we'll turn the corner and ask, how can we 
receive encouragement from Jesus like they did? How can we have a relationship with him that just supplies us with all the strength we need to keep following him faithfully? So let's jump in. We're going to be in Acts, sorry, not Acts, that's where it opened up. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 2, all right? Chapter 9, verse 2. Here's where it begins. It says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Okay? So Jesus wakes the disciples up early, only three of them, Peter, James, and John. And uh, these three were kind of like Jesus' inner circle. They were leaders among the disciples and would eventually become leaders of the early church. And so they were invited into these special private moments with Jesus. This is another example of that. And so Jesus invites them on this hike, this early morning hike, up the mountain. And it's believed that this was likely Mount Hermon. It's the, the tallest peak uh, in, in a long distance, like a, a wide area. So they're going to go up to the top to be alone. I mean, that's kind of why you go up to mountains, right? Uh, you don't go up there for crowds. You go up there for silence and, and beauty. And so they're going up there because sacred things happen on the tops of mountains. You guys know that in Utah, right? And so this was likely Mount Hermon. Okay, it's about 9,000 feet in elevation. In Rhode Island, when we say that, people are like, man, that is a huge mountain. In Utah, you're like, that's a little foothill, right? A little different perspective. But they're going up there. And when they get up there, something crazy happens. Okay, th- this story was told by three of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all, all tell of this moment that is known as the Transfiguration. While they're up there, Mark emphasizes the way that Jesus' clothes change. They become dazzling white. He says, whiter than anyone in the world could ever bleach them. Matthew and Luke add a second detail. They describe the face of Jesus as being radiant, like shining like the sun. And what all of this is called is the transfiguration. The word there is the same word we get, our, our English term metamorphosis, that describes something being transformed from the inside out. So think when, whenever a larva becomes a bug or whenever a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, that is metamorphosis, something changing its physical state. And this is what happens to Jesus. So imagine being these disciples. They're tired from the hike. They're expecting to just sit down, maybe enjoy lunch and look at the breathtaking view. And all of a sudden, Jesus, their Messiah, their rabbi, is glowing like a light bulb, okay? And, and even for us, as you are hearing this, if this is the first time you're hearing this story, you might think, like, is this for, is this for real? Like, did, did something happen up there? They just got a little mi- mi- mix, mixed up, like maybe altitude sickness, something's going on. But here's what's going on, okay? We know that Jesus did not begin his existence with his birth, okay? Jesus, being fully God, has always existed and always will exist in the full glory of God, okay? So there's this moment when Moses encounters God's glory on a mountain. He comes back and his face is shining so radiantly. They put a veil over him. We are told in the book of Revelation that in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no need for the sun or moon because the lamb, which is Jesus, will be its lamp. Okay? So God exists in his full glory, in this radiant, indescribable glory. That's always been Jesus. But during his time on earth, he added to his full glory, the human form. So the glory of God was wrapped in human flesh and blood. 
John, one of the other gospel writers, John chapter 1, verse 14, says this. It says, the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what we have in Jesus, he is fully God, he is fully man. He's the glory of God wrapped in human flesh, okay? So I want you to think about it like this. There are times when you drive home, you pull into your driveway, and waiting for you on your step or your porch is a plain brown cardboard box. You know what I'm talking about? You've had this experience. Everyone has this experience. And you get excited, right? But you're not excited because you have a cardboard box. You have, you're excited because there is something better than the cardboard box in the box, right? Now, I don't want to overstate it. It may be like a water filter replacement for your, you know, your fridge or, or a part to fix the vacuum. But the point is that what's in the box is better than the box, and kids get excited. They, they grab it. It doesn't matter what it is. And they like grab the closest knife and you're like trying to save their life. But, but th- there's something exciting about it. Here's the thing. What's in the box is better than the box, right? And, and in, in the person of Jesus, we have this simple human body, flesh and blood. But there's something even better that is covered up by that, that is contained in it. And it is the full glory of God. So next time you pull a package inside your house, I want you to hold that brown box and I want you to think human body of Jesus, okay? And then as you open it up, whatever you're pulling out, I just want you to take a moment and say glory of God, okay? Think of Jesus. So in this moment on earth, just this this finite moment on earth, Jesus appears on earth as he always has been and always will be in heaven. And the disciples get to see it. They witness the glory of God. Then, something almost equally amazing happens. Verse 4 says that, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So we don't know how the disciples knew that this was Elijah and Moses. You don't know if Moses is carrying the Ten Commandments or they're wearing name tags like, hi, I'm Elijah. I don't know. But somehow they know who these people are. And if you don't know who these people are, these are central figures in the Old Testament. Maybe a couple of the two most important figures in the Old Testament. So Moses, his story goes all the way back to Exodus, second book in the Bible. And Moses' story is that Israel, God's people, were enslaved in Egypt God raised up Moses as their deliverer. So under Moses' leadership, God freed the Israelites from slavery so that they could live free and worship God. Okay? Hundreds of years later, God sent Elijah as a prophet. He performed miracles and he delivered a message. And the point of Elijah's ministry to the people of Israel was to turn their hearts away from sin and back toward God during an extended time of unfaithfulness. Israel had been unfaithful. They'd turned away from God. Elijah was the voice that said, turn back to God. And so when you think of the two of them, it may feel like Mark in his storytelling got, the, uh, got them out of order. Because Elijah comes first, even though he appears hundreds of years after Moses, and Moses comes second, even though he would be considered the the more prominent figure between the two. And so the question is, was there a mistake made, or is there a purpose here? And I believe that the order that they appear with Jesus in his full glory 
is central to our understanding of what's happening on that mountaintop. So when Moses came, there was this promise God made. Late in Moses' life, God spoke to Moses, and he said this. This is Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. God said to Moses, I will raise up for them, for the people of Israel, a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So, so get this. God said to Moses, I'm going to bring another Moses. There's going to be another deliverer like you. And people held on to this. This was one of the first promises about the Messiah God would send. And so people, as Israel progressed through their history and they found themselves once again oppressed and, and sent off into uh, different forms of slavery, they just longed for someday God is going to send another Moses. We just can't wait for it. He'll be our deliverer. Hundreds of years later, God made another promise to send not only another Moses, but another Elijah. It just says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. This is God saying, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, so there's a lot to digest there. I'll try to simplify it. Here's what God is saying. Before the Messiah comes, another messenger will come. And that messenger will prepare the way so that people are ready to receive my Messiah. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, he gives that, that messenger a name. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So here's the way to simplify it. There's a lot there. I'm going to condense it. Here's the idea. Israel believed that another Moses would come to deliver them, but before another Moses would come, another Elijah would come to prepare the way. And so when they're on top of the mountain, Jesus is in his full glory, and Elijah comes first, and a Moses follows. And this is a way to say in Jesus, both are fulfilled. Another Elijah has come, John the Baptist, to prepare the way. And the other Moses, the Messiah, has come to save the day. And that is Jesus. So in this one moment on the mountaintop, the disciples see Jesus in his full glory. And they see Elijah and Moses there with him, affirming that he is the fulfillment of every single command. God, excuse me, promise. God has given throughout all of Israel's history. Jesus is the fulfillment, the culmination of all of it. And as the story continues, if you know Peter, if you've been in the Gospel of Mark long enough, you know that sometimes Peter does some, some silly things. Here in verse 5 it says, And Peter said to Jesus, again, glory, this amazing moment. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He's basically asking for them to have a slumber party. Let's stick around for a little while. And Mark adds this editorial comment. He says, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So there, there's a funny detail here, okay? Mark was not a disciple. Mark was not an eyewitness to any of these events. The only reason he is able to write about them at all is because he was friends with Peter through the church in Jerusalem. So through their friendship, Peter told him all these stories, and Mark, with pen and parchment, would write them down. 
And I just imagine that as, as Peter is retelling the story, man, we climbed the mountain, we got up there, like God's glory shone around us. Mark, Mark is just writing, he's like, Peter, this is incredible. You were there, what did you do? And Peter's like, I don't know, bro. Like, I, I was so scared. All, all I could say is like, hey, we should build some tents. And Mark's like, what? <laughs> I got to write this down. I'm sorry, man. And, and he writes it down. Like, Peter has no idea what's going on here. He's just speaking. Can't stop. While well, Peter is stumbling over his words, verse 7 describes what happens next. It says, and a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So, after all this, this cloud descends. And a cloud throughout the Old Testament was representative of the presence of God. I don't, I don't mean any just like puffy cloud floating by where they'd be like, oh, look, maybe there's God. But I mean like a different kind of cloud. So for instance, when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, a cloud surrounded the mountain. Whenever they dedicated the tabernacle or later the temple, consecrated themselves and said, God, this is your dwelling place among us, a, a cloud filled the temple and they knew that God was with them. And so while these disciples are with Jesus on the mountain, a cloud descends and, and covers them. And that cloud, being God himself, speaks to them. And these words are reminiscent of the baptism of Jesus. If you were here in the fall, maybe you heard the, the baptism of Jesus in Mark chapter 1, where as Jesus comes up out of the water, this voice from heaven speaks down and says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. In this moment, God is speaking to Jesus to give him affirmation. Say, Yes, I am pleased with you as you walk to the cross. See, in this moment on the mountain, though, the perspective changes, and God says, this is my son. He's not speaking to Jesus anymore. He's talking to the disciples, and this time he's speaking not to give Jesus affirmation, but to give Jesus authority. He's saying, hey, hey, boys, listen up. This is my son, and you need to listen to him, because he's my son. And it's after this moment, it's as if this voice speaking words of authority over Jesus commanding the disciples to listen to him, it's as if that was the point of it all because as soon as that happens, everything is gone. Jesus looks human again. Moses and Elijah have hit the road. No slumber party for Peter. Like the cloud is gone. The voice is silent. Back to normal. Whatever purpose this was supposed to serve, it's been fulfilled. And they head back down the mountain. Verse 9 says, As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them, to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This seems like a tall order for Jesus, right? Like, I know that you just had this, like, breathtaking, life-changing moment. You just got to keep it quiet. There will be a time and a place, but not yet. Not until after the resurrection. The reason is because if this story started to circulate, you can only imagine the hype and hysteria that would surround Jesus that might surely impede his way to the cross. So he goes, just hold on to it till after, after I'm risen. It says they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, hey, why, did, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? 
think about, they're thinking about, they saw Elijah on the mountain. They're like, what's the deal with him coming first? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written, Jesus still speaking, of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Then Jesus says, but I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. He points to John the Baptist and says, don't you realize that that John the Baptist served the ministry of Elijah, called people away from sin and back to God in preparation for the Messiah. He goes, he's already come, and I'm the only one left. And they get down to the bottom of the mountain. Some, some scholars say that this is the pinnacle moment of the ministry of Jesus outside his death and resurrection that this is as close to heaven as any human being has come this side of the new heaven and the new earth. That this is an incredible moment. And the question is, well, what was happening here? Why, Why did this happen? Why did Jesus lead the disciples up the mountain? What was going on? And I believe that this event was for the disciples. It's all about Jesus and what he is revealing about himself. But Jesus does it for a very specific purpose. There is something he intends for the disciples. If you look at this story, Jesus is the one who initiates it. He says, hey, boys, let's go. And when they get up there, they are, are the kind of, everything is oriented around them. So as Mark is telling the story, he says, Jesus was transfigured before them. Moses and Elijah appeared to them. The cloud covered them. The voice spoke to them. The disciples are a part of this experience. It is for them. And here's what I think is going on here. Okay, remember that this is just six days after the crucial conversation Jesus had where he flipped their idea of Messiah and disciple upside down. And they are reeling. And they're like, oh my goodness, if if Jesus being king means he's going to go to the cross. If if him being king means that we got to follow him there, is it still worth it? Like, this is not what we expected at all. Like, are we still in? And Jesus says, okay, I'm going to give you an experience that will be for you, not only in this moment, but for the rest of your lives, the encouragement you need to go steady on in the way of the cross. He knows what they are feeling. He knows what they will face. These three men will suffer unimaginable things in the name of Jesus. Peter and James are murdered because they won't stop talking about Jesus. John is tortured over and over again. They try to kill him. It just doesn't work. And eventually he's exiled to an island to spend the rest of his days. I mean, these guys knew suffering in the name of Jesus. And he knew that they would need an encounter with him that would be strong enough to encourage them to keep going so that when they were in prison, they're like, man, we know who Jesus is. We just can't say, we can't turn away. When, when, when they were beaten, when ministry was hard, when they were traveling and it was difficult, they would be able to look back and be like, we have seen too much. We know too much. We just can't stop following our king. And this is the purpose of the event. Jesus reveals all that they need to see about him so that they could go strong and encouraged the way of the cross. And there is a principle here that I think we need just as much. And here's what I want to say. This is a big idea of the message is that disciples need encouragement from Jesus to walk the way of the cross. 
Disciples need encouragement from Jesus to walk the way of the cross. What I mean by this is that when Jesus calls you, the, the invitation to you is the same as it was to Peter, James, and John. He says, hey, if you want to be my disciple, it doesn't mean glory. It doesn't mean power. It doesn't mean that your wildest dreams come true. It means that you deny yourself, that you get up off your throne so you can bow before mine. It means that you take your rights that you want to defend and you set them aside. It means that you look at others and truly believe that you are no better than them. You take the posture of selflessness and willingness to sacrifice, humility toward all around you, because this is the way of Jesus. And let's just be honest for a minute. It is hard to walk the way of the cross in marriage, where every day you choose to love the other even more than yourself, where you are the first to repent and the first to forgive and the first to serve and the first to defer. Where you go, I'm going to do this because this is, this is the way of Jesus. It is not about me anymore. It is hard to walk the way of the cross in parenting. Parenting is hard. It is exhausting. Every day you are choosing to pour yourself out, to deprive yourself of sleep or freedom or the things you want to do because you are trying to nurture and raise this child to become a disciple. Where you have to depend on the Holy Spirit to give you patience or gentleness or self-control so you don't lose your stuff when you're at your limit. It is hard to walk the way of the cross at work where there are others who might be willing to take shortcuts that you won't take, where you choose honor and honesty and integrity in everything, where you choose to treat your peers or your employees or your boss the right way because Jesus is your king. It is hard to walk the way of the cross in this world filled with outrage and defiance and aggression where it seems like people are willing to go, go to war with each other over the, what, what should be the smallest of things. Maybe you've gotten blown up on social media for something you didn't even realize. Maybe relationships have changed because of secondary opinions over the last couple years. Maybe because of a decision you've made about Jesus, your family doesn't view you the same way anymore. Your kids may be ostracized in their schools. And you look at it and you're like, this is hard. Sometimes it hurts. How do I keep going? Is it worth it? And the point here is that you've got nothing inside you that is enough to keep you going. It doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter how, how good your intentions are. How much you meant that commitment years ago. You need continual encouragement from Jesus to keep you walking the way of the cross. Only he has the strength you need. Only he has the encouragement you need to get up day after day and say, this is the way. And so the question is, how do we receive that from him? can't climb the mountain, can't see the transfiguration. So how do we receive encouragement from him? I believe it is all about maintaining contact with Jesus, our King. 
closer we are to him, the more contact we have, the more his strength and encouragement will flow into our lives. It's kind of like this. A few months ago, I purchased a new phone charger. Yeah, I, I don't know what it's like at your house, but we could have eight little white cubes one day and can't find a single one the next. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know what happens to them, but they're gone. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to do something different this time. Like, no, no more white cubes. I'm going to get a, a, a cordless one where I can just set my phone on it overnight, and it's going to charge, and it'll be great. So the first morning, I wake up, and my phone is dead. <laughs> and I realized that when I set my book down right before bedtime, I, I nudged my phone, and it lost contact and didn't get charged. Okay, so problem fixed. Every night now, both hands, I'm going to place it there, keep everything else clear, solid contact. A couple weeks ago, I wake up, my phone is dead. Check the contact, I follow the cord down, I realize that someone I love very much unplugged my charger so they could plug in their Kindle. God bless our kids, right? <laughs> like, ah, oh, okay, so it's, it has contact, but it's not plugged in. And we would probably like to think that our contact with Jesus is set it and forget it, right? I made the decision, I'm good. I'm with him. But our contact is much more fragile and fickle than we would like to admit. That we are so easily distracted, we are busy, we are burnt out. And over time, like something gets dislodged, we still love Jesus. We're still committed to him. We're just not in the kind of contact we need to receive his strength day after day. And so the question is, how can we maintain that contact? How can disciples receive the encouragement they need from Jesus so we can keep walking the way of the cross? And I want to look at this story, and I believe that there are three themes we can pull out from this, three ways that this encouraged the disciples and launched them off in the right direction. I'd love for you to write these down. My hope is that you would hold on to them and maybe figure out how to put them into practice in the weeks to come. Again, the question is, how can disciples receive the encouragement they need from Jesus? The first thing I think we can see from this story is that we need to remember the defining moments of our faith. We need to remember the defining moments of our faith. Here, here's what I mean by this, okay? Jesus knew in this moment what the disciples needed. And he gave Peter, James, and John this experience, not just for that moment, but so that they could hold on to it for the rest of their lives and look back to it be, to be encouraged and strengthened. So they could then later share it with other disciples who would then be encouraged and strengthened by it. And this very thing happens, okay? If you trace the life of Peter, he was imprisoned, he was beaten, he was imprisoned again, he, then he was murdered. Just a couple years, like just a short time before he died in the name of Jesus, for the name of Jesus, he wrote a letter to some Christians that we have in our Bibles. It's called Second Peter. Listen to what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, Peter says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. You hear what he's saying? This is 30 years later. 
He's looking back. He's going, you may be discouraged. I may be like just watching my days come to an end. Because, but we were there on the holy mountain. Years later, this experience on the mountain with Jesus was such a defining moment in his faith that he still held on to it just as tightly as ever. He saw Jesus in a different way. He felt the presence of God. He heard God speak just how they needed to hear it. And my question is, have you ever had a moment like this? Can you look back uh, on your life and identify when God showed up, when he spoke up, when you felt his presence, when he gave you exactly what you needed for the day? Can you remember days like that? That are just so undeniable. Like, it doesn't matter what someone else says about Jesus. It doesn't matter what oppositions you may feel. Like, there's just nothing someone can do to steal your faith away because you've seen so much and you know too much. You just can't let go. Like, for me, I look back. I was baptized almost 30 years ago, but I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember the feeling of coming up out of the water. I remember just the the assurance that the Holy Spirit was with me. Like, I, I can't forget that moment. I remember going to church camp with Josh, and that, that was when I felt like the Lord just burdened my heart for ministry, and I can't forget that. There have been times where Rachel, my wife, and I have laid our lives before the Lord when we had decisions to make about where to live and, and how to do ministry and what to do, what to give our lives to, and, and we had preferences and desires, but we just said, Jesus, it all belongs to you, and we wept in prayer. And God gave us clarity and discernment to know where to go and what to do. We experienced him. There have been times where we have felt deep grief over loss, sadness over unmet desires. And in those moments, we just clung to Jesus, felt his presence and his assurance and his comfort and his peace. And I can string together other moments too. And these moments tell a story that God is good and he is present. And there's just nothing anyone can do to take that away. And so when I feel discouraged, when I feel depleted, I just look back. I'm like, no, I know too much and I've seen too much. Jesus is king and it's worth it. And my question is, do you have those moments that you can look back on, that you can hold on to? when the road is long and hard to be assured that Jesus is king and it is worth every step to follow him. My hope is that you'd be able to identify those and when you need him, you can pull them out. When you gather with your path groups this week, maybe you can tell some stories. Maybe you go home and tell your kids a couple of those moments to let them in on how God has worked in your life to reveal himself. The second thing is this, all right? We can receive encouragement, when we remain close to Jesus through obedience. When we remain close to Jesus through obedience. So think about this. The, the three disciples, we think they, they got a privilege, right? They, they got this invitation to walk with Jesus up the mountain. Remember that long hikes like that don't start in the middle of the morning. Like I've hiked with Josh. Last time I hiked with him, he woke me up at 2.30 a.m. so we could start. I don't know that I've ever woken up that early. It wasn't that hard to get up because we were sleeping on a pile of rocks, but like, it, is, it is work to get going. And so while these three are crawling out of bed, the other nine disciples are still tucked in and cozy. While, while these are working their way up this peak, the other disciples are sitting around the fire having a chat and breakfast. 
Like there was a sacrifice. The only reason they had this mountaintop experience is because they remained close to Jesus one step of obedience at a time. They just kept following him. And it's so important for us to remember that anytime Jesus calls you out of something else, it's because he's We have to understand all these small steps keep us close to Jesus, keep us conscious with him so his can flow into our lives. So whatever you know Jesus wants for you, when you choose to do that, that draws you closer to him. When you show up on a Sunday, when you open your Bible in the morning, when you go to path group, even when you're tired, when you honor your wife, when you remain pure, when you're out with your friends or home alone, when you surrender your finances to Jesus because he is king, when you do any or all of these things, there are small steps of obedience that over time just tether you to him so that his encouragement and strength can flow into your life. See, I think a lot of times we think we need to be strong so that we can obey. But I think that's backwards. I think that we need to obey so that we can be strong. That it is actually from our decisions to obey, even when we feel weak, even when we feel tired. It's our decisions to surrender and obey and walk the way of the cross that result in us being stronger than we ever would have been before. And so what is it that maybe over the last couple years you've stopped doing that you know Jesus wants you to do? What is it you know he calls you to obey that you need to start doing? See, I've had conversations with people who said, man, I I just don't feel as close to Jesus right now. I feel like God is distant. I'm feeling kind of frustrated or discouraged in my faith. And through a conversation, we'll realize it's because they've stopped. At some point along the way, they have stopped doing the things they know Jesus wants them to do. They've stopped showing up on Sundays. They've stopped connecting with other believers. They've stopped reading their Bible. They've taken back parts of their life that were once surrendered. And it's like, hey, listen, God never moves. We do. And so if we want the encouragement from Jesus that we need, we've got to remain close to him one small step of obedience at a time. And the last thing, how do disciples receive encouragement from Jesus? Last thing, is we rely on God's power through prayer. We rely on God's power through prayer. It is very likely that the initial intention of this journey was to pray on top of the mountain. That's what Jesus did on top of the mountain. Story after, we we see this several times. The disciples probably thought they were going up to pray, and that was worth it. They got a different experience while they were up there, and on the way down, they were having a conversation with Jesus, trying to make sense of it and figure out how to live it out. And anytime we talk to Jesus, we call it prayer. So maybe we could say that they prayed on the way down too. When they get down to the bottom, there's a strange experience. So while the three disciples and Jesus were up on the mountain, the other nine were down amongst the crowd, and there was this father who had brought a demon-possessed son to them with the hope that they might be able to do something about it. And they're like, well, Jesus isn't here. We can give it a shot. And we don't know what they did. We have no idea what happened in that encounter, but they failed. Okay, they were frustrated. The crowd was confused. There was arguing and finger-pointing. And then Jesus and the three disciples arrive. Like, hey, what's going on here? Father brings the boy to Jesus. Jesus, with a few words, cast the demon out, and the disciples are confused. They're like, Jesus, what what happened? Why couldn't we do this? And Jesus, in Mark chapter 9, verse 28, 
It says, and when he had entered the house, they're in this private moment now, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. He says that only prayer can do a work like this. Because prayer gives us access to the power of God. Prayer is what pulls God's power into your life. So when you pray for your marriage, when you pray for your coworker, when you pray for your struggle with sin, you're saying, I can't do it on my own. I need God's power in this moment. It is the ultimate recognition that I can't do it on my own. And we cannot be disciples of Jesus if we are prayerless in our lives. We just can't walk the way without it. And so my question for you is, what needs to happen in your life that can only be accomplished through the power of God? Is there a change in your heart towards someone? Is there an act of forgiveness to replace bitterness? Is there a decision you've got to make and you just know I can't do this without God? If you can identify something like that in your life, then you must take it to God in prayer because it's the only way to bring his power into that. And so Jesus knows that when, when he is calling his disciples then and now to walk the way of the cross, he understands that the cost is high and the road is hard. He understands that. He's only asking you to do what he's already done for you. But he also doesn't expect you to be on it alone. He wants to become your source of encouragement. He wants to be your source of strength. But we've got to remain close to him in order to do that. And so I believe this story gives us a view of Jesus, gives us a vision for who he is, who he's always been, and who he always will be. And if we can remember the defining moments of our faith, we can remain close through obedience and rely on his power through prayer, I absolutely believe that you will have what you need to walk the way of the cross no matter the cost. I want to leave you with two questions. My hope is you might write these down, talk about them in path groups, or just reflect on them on your own. First question is this. Where do you feel the need for encouragement from Jesus right now? Is there anything going on in your life where you are just up against it? You are tired. You are frustrated. You're discouraged. You're not quite sure if it's worth it. Where do you feel the need for encouragement from Jesus right now? And the second question is what can you do this week to receive encouragement from Jesus? So if you need it, what will you do to receive it? Maybe, there, maybe you need to retell some of those defining moment stories. Maybe you need to, to choose the act of obedience you've been resisting for a long time. Maybe you need to make prayer more a part of your daily rhythm. What do you need to do this week to receive encouragement from Jesus? As you reflect on that, let's pray. Father God, I pray that your word would fall on fertile soil, that it would bear fruit. Pray that you would encourage our hearts, strengthen our souls, supply us with what you know we need. God, even without knowing the people of this church well, I can imagine that there is a struggle amongst us. That it is hard to walk the way of the cross. It is absolutely worth it, but it's still hard. And I pray as we go from here today, Jesus, that you would be our strength. You are full of glory, always have been, always will be. 
You are the king on the throne and we bow before you. You are the fulfillment of every good promise of God. And we worship your holy name. Give us the strength we need to stay faithful to you to the very, very end. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.